So, well, good evening, everyone. Uh, I'm Stuart Corbridge. I'm the Deputy Director and Provost here at LSE. It's really a great pleasure and honour to welcome you to the school for this evening talk by Professor Lord Giddens on the topic of the politics of climate change 2014, what cause for hope. So now's the time, please, to turn off your mobile phones or to put them to silent along with other electronic devices. If you do want to tweet tonight, the hashtag is LSE Climate. Tony's pacing about, but I told him I was going to give him a fairly extensive introduction. Uh, Tonight's talk is sponsored both by the Department of International Relations here at LSE and by the school's Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment. Although a sociologist by training and academic profession, uh, Tony Giddens is affiliated to both of these outfits, not least by virtue of the fact that he was not so long ago, uh, in fact from 1997 to 2003, uh, the director of LSE, LSE itself and a much admired director, I have to say. Prior to coming to LSE, Tony was for a long time... Before I got here. <laughs> Just as well the microphone's not on for these offstage <laughs> comments. Prior to coming to LSE, Tony uh, was for a long time a member of the Faculty of Social and Political Sciences at Cambridge University, where he was also a fellow of King's College. By the, tone, by the time that Tony left uh, Cambridge for LSE, he'd already published Beyond Left and Right in 1994 and was starting to advise Tony Blair. Famously, of course, Tony is seen as the main architect of the Third Way in politics that both Blair and Clinton claimed to sign up to in the 1990s and which was the title of a book published by Professor Giddens in 1998. To list all of Tony's more than 30 books uh, would take me quite a while. I'm not going to do that. But it is important to recognise that Tony in the 1980s was one of the most heavily cited and read sociologists anywhere in the world, and particularly was known for his work on the theory of structuration. A personal favourite book of mine from the mid-1980s is The Nation, State and Violence, which was perhaps one of Tony's earliest attempts to move away from high-level social theory to a more empirically informed account of class, sovereignty and citizenship and the problems of long-run international development. That project has clearly been continued and deepened since the time that Tony stepped down as the LSE's director. In 2004, he was made a life peer and he continues to sit in the House of Lords for Labour as Baron Giddens of Southgate. Over the past 10 years, Professor Giddens has mainly written on the politics of Europe and the European project and on the politics of climate change, the latter being the title of a book that Tony published in 2007, which I think has been revised for publication next year. So we're always delighted when Lord Giddens comes back to the school to speak, and we're particularly pleased tonight that Tony's going to be speaking on climate change politics. I have to say that I'm particularly excited because uh, when he was a much younger man, and I was a much younger man. I used to go to Tony's lectures in the 1970s, and he hired me at LSE over a dozen years ago. So it really does give me great pleasure to ask Tony (laughs) to speak to all of you tonight. Can you hear me with this? Anybody can't hear me with this? Well, um, good evening, everybody. Can I say uh, what a great pleasure it is for me to be... Do I need a new microphone? 
I think it's fine. Can you hear it? Can you hear me up? Yeah. Can you hear me up now? Yeah. You'll have to tell me if it fades or something. But it's much easier for me to have a mic and walk around, really, if you don't mind. Anyway, I was just saying, um, it's a great pleasure for me to be back at the LSE, where, as Stuart just said, I was director for seven very happy years. And if you who are at the LSE today have half as good a time as I did, you'll get a richly rewarding experience. I'd like to uh, thank the Grantham Institute for inviting me and congratulate the Institute on the groundwork, or path-breaking work they're doing on uh, climate change. And I'd like to thank Stuart for his uh, very interesting introduction. Um, actually, if you don't mind, I'd like to thank someone else, some other people, and that is the people in the red shirts and a guy called Alan Ravel, who organises the events, the evening events at the LSE. I mean, there's just an amazing programme of public lectures that the LSE has. No other institution I think I've ever been in in the world had so many distinguished people visiting. And Alan and his team make that possible. So if you don't mind, I know it's a bit uh, in advance, but maybe you just give them a round of applause for all their work. Yeah. Can I have a few problems with this, I can see. Uh, well, um, I wrote this book, as Stuart said, Politics, Climate Change, um, a few years ago, in 2008, um, actually. Uh, it's gone through subsequent edition since then, and I'm just contemplating a third edition of the book. In other words, six or seven years on. And I thought that would give me a good platform for this talk because I want to pose the question, what's happened since then? What progress has the world made in combating the threats associated with climate change over that period? Uh, the period when I wrote the book um, was actually one of considerable hope. Um, Al Gore had just written this book and made his film called Inconvenient Truth. And this was very successful around the world and uh, was discussed in many countries across the world. And uh, Al Gore, like the segment of the United Nations that deals with climate change, the IPCC, shared the Nobel Prize, Nobel Peace Prize, uh, in 2007 for their work, such was its prominence. There's actually quite a good little joke about this. Um, some people here might not remember, but um, Al Gore could and probably should have been the President of the United States instead of George W. Bush. History would have been very different. He didn't become President of the United States because of some fiddling of votes that went on down in Florida, and the course of history changed. Well, the joke goes like this. Uh, Al Gore is waiting 
for the results of the Nobel Prize jury, right? And he phones up one of his aides, and his aide says, Congratulations, Al. You've won more votes than anyone else. <laughs> and Al says, Great, who won? <laughs> well, it wasn't, it, it wasn't just Al Gore who was making the news. It was also the IPCC, the other half of the Nobel Prize-winning uh, group which is the organization of the United Nations, which regularly produces uh, very detailed reports on climate change and the threats it poses to us, and which meets regularly to try to forge global policy. They met in Copenhagen. They were due to meet when I was writing my book. They hadn't met when I wrote my book in 2009. There was a fantastic aura of hope around it. 115 world leaders came to Copenhagen. President Obama came. Hillary Clinton came. Famously, for those of you who know about the history of these things, it turned out to be a fiasco. Something close to complete fiasco. Radical disagreements. No clear strategy was worked out. The result was a very short document called the Copenhagen Accord. It was signed up to by five nations, initially anyway, not the result of the UN process as a whole. It included the BRICS nations and the United States. The EU, which uh, at that time thought itself as the leader in combating climate change, didn't even get in on the act, wasn't even consulted in the drawing up of, of that document. So this, if you like, was perhaps the greatest flop in the history of attempts to control climate change through reaching international agreements. As I'll mention a bit later on, there is a new meeting happening in Paris in uh, 2015 next year. But I think one has to be pretty cautious, even if one has to endorse the process, to me, the history of the United Nations' attempts to reach global agreements is like a bit like the film The Matrix. You have a kind of world in which success is defined by having more meetings. There have been 20 meetings so far uh, to try to contain climate change. Very little of any practical kind has been agreed. In the meantime, in the real world, things are getting worse and worse. So as I'll suggest later on, we certainly today have to look for alternatives alongside this process. Now, when I look back on it, there's something very interesting and peculiar happening over the period from 2008 to uh, 2014 today. On the one hand, the science of climate change, our understanding of climate change, our understanding of the dangers posed by climate change to the future of our civilization, the science has advanced very substantially since that period. It's important, I think, that you in the audience know this. The science is getting more robust each passing year. And I'd like to make just a few points about it since I'm trying to talk to general audience, not just an audience of climate change uh, specialists. First of all, our scientific understanding of what climate change is 
In other words, humanly induced climate change through the intrusion of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. That understanding comes from many different sources. There is the increasing temperature of the air, but the NASA website, NASA being the best, probably most uh, sophisticated organization concerned with global climatology, has 20 different indices of anthropogenic climate change on its website, if you care to check. And um, they range from increasing temperatures of the sea, melting of the ice, melting of the Arctic, but also very sophisticated measurements from space, confirming predictions of scientists who've charted out the advance of global warming. Now, in this, there are uncertainties. The uncertainties are not, I think, about whether global warming is happening. They are not. They are not about whether global warming is caused by human activity. We have many sources of, of, of scientific investigation that show that it is. There are uncertainties about what its impact will be. Now, the IPCC, either this vast legion of scientists under the auspices of the United Nations, argue that climate change is dangerous, that it's dangerous to the path of development of our civilization globally. But it's in the future. We don't completely know. So the climate change skeptics who uh, doubt whether climate change is caused by human beings, who doubt whether it poses serious threats to our future, are able to feed on this uncertainty. Having looked at it in as much detail as a non-scientist myself can, the conclusion I reached is that the skeptics have possibly a 5%, if you're very generous, a 10% chance of being right, that climate change is not, either not really happening or is mainly benign. But I mean, would you get on an aeroplane? only had a 5 or 10% chance of arriving. And here we're talking about the continuity of industrial civilization on the face of the earth in the 21st century. Moreover, uncertainty cuts two ways. The risk could be less than most orthodox scientists think, but they could be much greater. <clears throat> you can make a good argument to the effect that the morass of scientists involved in the United Nations volumes on climate change actually take a conservative position because they have to agree with one another. So it's uh, a, at least as possible that climate change may be more dangerous than the majority of scientists think. And that, on the whole, tends to be my view. It's the view of James Hansen, who is one of the most famous climatologists in the world associated with NASA, uh, actually. Why is climate change dangerous? Uh, primarily because it will accentuate extreme weather patterns all around the world. It may not seem much, but you can easily concretize it. If you're following in your newspapers, there is a typhoon going through Japan, and there is a cyclone going through parts of India. Though the typhoon has winds of up to 100 miles an hour and is causing devastation. Imagine what the world would be like if you had storms like that that were twice 
or perhaps three times as intense. Hard to see how we could possibly cope. You should not forget the fearsome power of nature, which is visible in these circumstances, but which is latent everywhere. And quite an interesting thing about all this is that the different schools of thought involved with the climate change have kind of contrasting images of the world and our impact on it. The skeptics say the world is essentially robust. Nothing we can do as little human beings is going to make much difference. The green movement tends to say the earth is vulnerable. We're damaging the earth and we must repair that damage. But the third school, the James Hansen type school, says the earth is like a wild beast and we're busy prodding that wild beast with sticks and it will react violently towards us. It's a pretty frightening um, scenario. Climate change is dangerous because it intersects with the other global problems we have in the 21st century. Uh, population growth, the proliferation of nuclear weapons, you'll get mass migrations as the climate uh, alters across the world. It will interact with the other dangers we face, which heightens uh, the worries that we should have about it as it progresses. Moreover, it's very important to emphasize this, climate change is not like global poverty. Global poverty is a bad thing, right? And it'll be a bad thing in 2050 if we don't do anything about it. But climate change, so far as we know, is irrevocable. There is no way we can get the greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere once they're there. So if we're unable to control the intrusion of those gases into the atmosphere, over a pretty short time period, probably less than 20 years, the whole thing might spiral out of our control forever. Some of the greenhouse gases will be in the world's atmosphere for centuries. So it looks a pretty frightening scenario, but the puzzle is, or what seems to be a puzzle is, why is the world so passive in the face of these dangers? Because very little has happened at a practical level. Very few policies have been initiated of global scope, which would substantially bring down greenhouse gas emissions. And when you look at recent surveys of public opinion around the world, public opinion has become more indifferent to climate change than it was in uh, 2007 to 8 by a, a range of measures, especially in the industrial countries. And the industrial countries are the ones that have to primarily take action because they're the ones who've released the greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. If you look at measures of CO2 in the atmosphere, best measured at uh, the volcano of uh, Mauna Loa in Hawaii, uh, the uh, level of CO2 in the atmosphere has for the first time gone over 400 parts per million, the highest it's ever been. In fact, it's the highest, it's known to be the highest for 800,000 years, which is a pretty long time in historical times. So why is this, what accounts for this perversity? Because the climate change, skeptics may be influential, but they're not that influential. Why should there be such a yawning gap 
between the dangers we face and our reaction to those dangers. Um, I based uh, the, the, the core of that book in its first edition around this issue, and I'll continue to do the same in the next edition, because when you look at them, you can see what the problems are. There is a very powerful set of breaks upon our attempts to deal with the risks which we face. Let me just mention a few of them. First of all, there are many powerful interests involved, including people in the fossil fuel industries and inertia, because most of our energy across the world comes from established fossil fuel um, producers. Second, climate change is filtered through the findings of science. This is very, very unusual. There are not many situations we have to face like this where we have to get our assessment of a risk almost wholly from scientists. I'm never going to be a climatologist. Most people in this audience will never be climatologists. So we're dependent upon the activity of some 5,000 scientists around the world whose works are inaccessible to the majority of people. Hence, there's a big space for the skeptics to operate. And it's impossible for a layperson to master the science of climate change. It's impossible. So there's a huge space there, a huge distance between um, the science involved in analyzing climate change and its dangers for us and the actual conduct of public opinion. It's very hard to bridge that gap. Thirdly, there are very big free rider problems. If uh, you look at the British Parliament, for example, quite strong pressures to revoke the Climate Change Act, which quite rightly, I think, was passed a few years ago. One of the grounds is, well, the UK only produces 2% of global emissions. What's the point of us acting on our own? But of course, if everybody says that, by definition, nothing happens. So the free rider problem is quite significant. And then there are very real issues around development. It's the rich countries which have spewed all this stuff into the atmosphere. Um, we have to allow China, India, Africa, less developed countries around the world, the chance to develop, the chance to become rich. Surely we do. I agree with that. We do. How can you reconcile that with reducing greenhouse gas emissions? They're pretty powerful, this group of reasons, but to me, they're not the main ones. They're not the main reason why there is this fabulous gulf between established scientific knowledge and risk, because it's all about risk, severity of risk, and inaction on the ground. The main reason, I think, is uh, what I called in my book, somewhat presumptuously, uh, Giddens' Paradox. Giddens' paradox says that climate change as a humanly induced issue is unique to our civilization and indeed unique to the last hundred or so years. No other civilization has ever intervened in nature remotely to the degree to which we do on an everyday basis. Therefore, there is no historical situation, no historical records, no historical data we can draw upon to seek to mobilize public opinion against it. 
It's an, a unique problem to our civilization, and the consequences of, yet, of, of it are not there. They are not there. They are to come. We're, to, we're not talking about risks which are visible, like being in a um, typhoon in Japan, which is visible enough if you're there. We're talking about risks which, to some extent, are future risks, and therefore hard to grasp them, hard to get hold of them, hard to see the reality of them. Because any single extreme weather example does not justify the existence of climate change. You have to have generic uh, changes in weather patterns. So I see the central difficulty of our world getting a stable future for itself in the 21st century around this situation. That situation being that we are likely to wait before, until, sorry, we'll wait until there is some cataclysmic, absolutely cataclysmic happening, which can be unequivocally linked to climate change, before we stir ourselves to action. But then, by definition, it will be too late, because we can't get the greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere until they're there. I see this paradox as the central issue, really, in climate change politics. And I have to say, we haven't got very far to date in resolving it. And, you know, I think you sit there in the audience, you think these risks are not, you know, they're not completely real. They're filtered through science, not completely real. And they're not, because they're future risks which we've never experienced before. So this is, the, to me, the core issue. And I don't, I don't see any other situation in 21st century uh, politics which is quite like this, quite the same. In the case of population growth, it's easy to give a visual component to it. In the case of nuclear war, the same. And after all, we've already dropped nuclear weapons on ourselves. So I think the fundamental issue in climate change politics is somehow coping with, a, if I am presumptuously calling it that, Giddens' uh, paradox. So in the next edition of the book, if I actually get down to writing the blooming thing, um, uh, I just want to sketch the ideas I've been toying with to see if we can get somewhere near. But, but you know, have no doubt about it. We are running huge risks with the future of our civilization on this earth, huge risks. And at the moment, we're not addressing those risks appropriately. Well, I was trying to find a good Armageddon joke for you. But as Judy knows, there aren't many good Armageddon getting jokes, but I found one I could try on you. I mean, I thought it was quite good, but you might think it's funny. Somebody says, try as I might, I can't spell Armageddon. And his friend says, don't worry, that's not the end of the world. <laughs> oh, well, you kind of get it. I think it's quite subtle, really. Well, let me, st let me uh, say to begin with, I'm not discounting Paris 2015, we must plough on with the UN meetings. We must try to give them purchase. But fundamentally, if we're going to resolve Giddens's paradox, I think we need a change of paradigm. And we have to ask what that change of paradigm could be. 
For those of you who've seen Naomi Klein's recent book, This Will Change Everything, she's also calling for a change of paradigm, but she has a somewhat different view of what that would be from me. But she's certainly recognizing that some things need to be uprooted, that it won't do just to plod along with the old notions and the old policies. So I got four basic proposals that I was thinking of rewriting the concluding sections of the book around. Can you treat this a bit like a wine tasting? That is, you know, just giving a little sip of it. I haven't got time really to provide a full glass, which I try to do when I um, write the book. So it's just to give some indication of what I'm thinking about and get reactions from you in discussion afterwards, hopefully. So these are the four points. First, I think we have to pull out the stops to bring climate change closer to the public and bring the public uh, closer to climate change. If we can't do that, many other problems can't be resolved. How do you do that? Well, there are some interesting endeavors around. Um, there are two that I have in mind. Has anyone seen the TV series Years of Living Dangerously? No one from the United States. Well, it aired in the United States and it got pretty substantial audiences. Years of Living Dangerously was based on trying to show that climate change is in the here and now and directly linked to situations of conflict around the world. And it, it did it in a pretty impressive way, I think. So if anyone's interested in climate change debate specifically, Years of Living Dangerously is a good thing to watch, I think. It did attract a big audience, and it did attract a big discussion in the media too. And it did actually make uh, an impact on public opinion in some states that have been vulnerable. For example, New York was vulnerable, spent billions after the hurricane. Florida was vulnerable, some parts of California. It's a massive drought in California at the moment, unprecedented drought in California. It's a, you know, this, it's a weird kind of world when you collect together all these uh, cases of extreme weather. I'm sure many people will have their own personal experiences. There's another endeavor called a risky business, which is interesting because uh, it's sponsored in some part by Republican politicians in the United States. Republicans have been mainly climate change skeptics and hostile to the idea of uh, climate change being dangerous and caused by human activity. One of the main people is a guy called Henry Paulson, who was Secretary of State under Nixon, I think it was, some way back. And risky business is interesting because it tries to show that businesses are vulnerable and vulnerable in the here and now. That is, if you don't factor climate change into your business decisions, not just in the future, but in the here and now, and you don't treat this as an evolving issue of significance for your business, at least in many areas of business, this will be dangerous for you. UCL has produced a very interesting report uh, on climate change science, um, suggesting that climate change scientists should have their own professional organization, and they should use this more actively to counter the disinformation of the skeptics and to bring climate change more directly to the public. Those are only three examples. There are quite a lot of strategies that could be used, but I think we've got to be very proactive about trying to do so, or so I shall argue. 
Second, rather than simply depending on the United Nations, I think we're going to have to give a lot of prominence to regional partnerships and partnerships between the most powerful nations in the world. If you look at the statistics on this, depending on how you estimate it, the United States and China contribute over 40% of greenhouse gases just between them. China has emerged as the biggest net producer of greenhouse gases, although not the biggest per head of population. India is looming as a country, 1.3 or 4 billion people, we don't really know, on the threshold of large-scale economic development. If we cannot get these countries to agree, anything the United Nations does is doomed. Therefore, it's crucial that those of us who work in the field try to get to the leaders of these countries, uh, try to ensure that they do actively interact with one another and recognize the dangers. It is happening. The United States and China have been working quite closely together. China has made major changes in its policies to do with coal-fired power stations, coal being the most lethal form of greenhouse gas. China is making very strong investments in renewable energy, very worried about pollution, which also comes, a lot of it comes from coal-based um, production, so there's a kind of double impetus. But it's again a bit eerie, because these three countries can't agree, can't work together, nothing the rest of the world will do will be enough. So therefore, whatever we can do, diplomatic and so forth, is important. The same thing is true in Latin America. Latin America, I don't know how many, any people here from Latin America? There always are in the LSC. Yeah, very good. Well, some of the Latin American countries are working together much more closely than um, countries anywhere else outside of the European Union anyway, and to good effect. Brazil is a very interesting example of a country which gets a very high proportion of its energy from renewable sources, depending on how you define renewable, but has massive problems with the rainforest, even though there have been some successes in holding back deforestation. Third, my third principle is that we must provide for hope alongside fear. That is, there must be positive motivation for countries, uh, cities, regions to reduce carbon emissions, not just fear of the consequences, because it's plain that fear of the consequences is not enough. For that reason, I support another document you might like to look at if you're interested in these things, the recent report of Felipe Calderon, the um, ex-president of Mexico, um, in which Nick Stern, who is the most prominent figure in the Grantham Institute, uh, features very centrally. The point of this report is to do, it's a kind of global report with 19 countries, I think, involved, is to show that there are many circumstances in which reducing carbon emissions is compatible with economic development. Now, this has been around a long time, the idea of green growth, but something has changed, I think. Not so sure how far the report says. That is, change happens much more quickly now than ever before. Think of the advent of the internet. Didn't even exist 16, 17 years ago. Now it's everywhere. Can we do the same with energy sources? It would seem far more possible than uh, in the past. And I think if we don't have um, cogent forms, 
of uh, following the principle, have hope alongside fear. We're not going to be able to mobilize, especially people in the developing part of the world. And most of the world is still the developing part of the world. These two are guys in the United States who founded this institute called the Breakthrough Institute had a very interesting observation on this. They said that Martin Luther King would never have got anywhere if he said, I have a nightmare. You've got to have a dream. And there's definitely something to that, I think. Finally, fourthly, we absolutely must have a new model of socioeconomic development. Not just because of uh, the reason to confront climate change or other environmental imperatives, but because of the impasse which the world economy has reached, I think. The problems that it's thrown up as a global economy. We need to do an awful lot of work on how we can produce alternative models of development. Fortunately, many economists are now working on this in the wake of the financial crisis, not just straight down the line environmentalists. Why is there some sort of hope here? Well, I think that it goes back to what I just said. We live in an intensely globalized world. Climate change is a negative expression of globalization of the last hundred years, accentuating now. But there is a hugely positive side, and that is the speed and radical nature with which advance can take place. Can we find, for example, an analog in the area of climate change to what happened with uh, phone systems in Africa. There, is, uh, there are more people in Africa owning mobile phones than in any other continent in the world, but most African countries don't have fixed landlines. They simply skip that stage. Why shouldn't we do the same with clean energy? Why is that more possible now than it was in 2007? Well, because of pretty gigantic technological advance and cost advance, especially in wind and solar power. It looks far more possible than it did when I first wrote the, edition, uh, the first edition of this book. As my guiding principle of this, I propose to you the idea of what I call utopian realism. That is, we need a quasi-utopian vision because the world does need to be different. We can't confront these issues unless it is. It does need structural transformation of the economy and wider patterns of human life. It must have a utopian element. On the other hand, it must be geared to realism as well. Utopian on its, utopianism on its own is no good. So if I can give you a concrete example of that, the next few years we're going to see a radical transformation of transport systems. The era of the traditional car is almost certainly drawing to an end, even though it's now a kind of global mode of transportation. Autonomous vehicles, like self-driving vehicles, are emerging, but so also are highly sophisticated technological traffic systems. They could have a double payoff, because not only is uh, transportation one of the main sources of carbon emissions, it's also one of the main sources of death. I don't know if you know, but more people died in the 20th century in vehicle accidents than died in both world wars. So the automobile or, or vehicle transport is linked to massive health 
risks and risks to life, new transport systems will eliminate a large number of these. They might be quite revolutionary. They'll be confined to some cities at first. But I think the pace of technological change has speeded up so much that it will be possible to get these things into shape, at least in substantial regions of the world, far, far quicker than it ever was in the past. In conclusion, um, I would say that when we look at the issue of climate change, a good anal analogy is to say that the whole world is a bit like a smoker. The future of our civilization can be understood as a person, uh, Mr. Globe, taking a puff on a cigarette, where the smoker says, oh, I'm only 18 years old, I can give up a long time before I'm 40. Or says, oh, or someone will invent a cure for cancer before I get it. Or who says, my granddad smoked 100 cigarettes a day and look, he was healthy to the end of his life as though that's got anything to do with it since it's all a matter of risk. Or invents numerous other rationalizations. That's the position we're in and that's why we're looking for breakthroughs. I don't believe that so far we've really found them. Therefore, a lot will depend on whether we can somehow accentuate change. We can somehow speed up some processes of innovation. You might say to me, oh, well, a lot of people have given up smoking, haven't they? But I would remind you it took 40 years for this to happen. We don't have 40 years in the case of climate change. And actually more people smoke in the world today than ever smoked before because of the sales of cigarettes in Asia over the last 10 to 20 years. So the model holds up pretty substantially. Well, I leave you with a little LSE story, which uh, I've told before on the LSE, so I do apologize to those who might have heard it, but it's sort of vaguely relevant to what I was talking about. You'd be pleased to know. Um, I don't know if you know, but um, George Bernard Shaw, who wrote the play Pygmalion that became My Fair Lady, was one of the founders of the London School of Economics because he was one of the Fabian socialists. And he had this kind of mixture of friendly and antagonistic relationship to Winston Churchill. And they had this exchange of uh, letters which went as follows. Uh, George Bernard Shaw wrote to Winston Churchill and said, Dear Winston, here are two tickets to the first night of my new play. Please bring a friend, always assuming you have a friend. And Winston Churchill wrote back saying, Dear Bernard, thank you for the tickets. I cannot make the first night. Please send me two tickets for the second night, always assuming there is a second night. <laughs> well, there will be no second night for our civilization if somehow we don't get all of this right and we have a pretty massive change of direction. Thank you very much for your attention. Great. So we're going to take questions probably in pairs. Uh, we'll, we'll sort of go upstairs, downstairs. If you could just keep your questions fairly short and say who you are. A microphone 
will come to Can you. Can I ask you to speak up because the acoustics Mike. are famously not good in the old theatre. Uh, well, as you found from my microphone. Microphone will come to you, so uh, at the back. Gentleman at the front. I can we'll, sing we'll you upstairs. a song in the interim, climate change song. Thank you very much, Lord Giddens. I found your lecture... Can you hold the mic nearer to your... I found your lecture very interesting, but simply the reason I came along was to find out and hear from you whether you are an optimist or a pessimist. My conclusion is that you are still hanging on to the hope that there is a future for civilization. I want to disillusion you very quickly indeed, simply by making the following observation. Tell me how the process of the melting of the Arctic ice cap can now be reversed. The answer is no, it can't be reversed. Therefore, it can only get worse. And therefore, the politics of climate change must be founded on the principle that we're on a, head, on a, on a transition towards the end of civilization. And to escape from that, rather like being told that you've got cancer and thinking, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear, we've got to face that reality. And that will determine the policies that must be adopted, which is that it doesn't exonerate us from taking this issue most seriously. What it does is to tell us that we have an absolute obligation to the future to do as much as we possibly can to prevent that, to delay that process, but it is inevitable. Well, um, what, what you say is, is quite correct. I don't have any objection to that because that is the track, in my view, that we're on. It is. And, you know, when I started writing my book, you, you, you know, we've been in various seminars together, including when I was writing the book, actually, I remember. And I thought at that time, if the Arctic visibly melted in the summer and progressively starts to disappear, it might be a wake-up call to the world. But what's happened instead, they're busy drilling for oil everywhere, opening up the Northwest Passage and so on. seems to have made no difference at all to public consciousness. I feel it's a very good example of what I'm calling Giddens' paradox, really. However, I don't see that means we should abandon efforts to contest it because we mustn't. We might be driven back on slightly noxious solutions, which I think for the moment we should certainly defer, as you know, geoengineering and so forth. We might be driven to those. We might not get that far. The risks are every bit as real as you're saying. We're talking at the outer edge of the existential destruction of our civilization, I think, especially when you think it goes along with all these other problems we have not resolved. We don't know how we're going to deal with a population that now, some people say, would be 11 million by 2050. We don't know. So there's a cluster of problems. That, to me, doesn't mean that one shouldn't pull out all the stops. I mean, you mentioned cancer. Well, there are cures for cancer. It's possible for some kinds of cancer. It's possible there could be a breakthrough in cancer treatment, I think, with uh, all things going on at the sort of deep levels of genetics and nanotechnology. So these things we must work on. You know, people are always saying, are oh, you an optimist or a pessimist? I, I just bracket that out because what I'm trying to say is climate change is a risk we've never experienced before. And therefore, it's very difficult to say with any assurance 
what one should be. I mean, you say you're pessimistic, you know, you've got Matt Ridley, for example, calls himself the rational optimist on the grounds that, you know, the world is getting better and better. Well, if pushed, I would define myself as a sort of irrational optimist. That is, I think, you know, we're in serious trouble globally. We are. And not just with this, but possibly with nuclear weapons, I think, in the future, too. So many, and they're so lethal. Um, but nevertheless, you know, human beings are enormously ingenious. There are amazing changes going on in different areas of the world. We must surely try and be activists in doing what we can to mute the consequences of these dangers. We'll, we'll go upstairs. And... Uh, hello, and many thanks for your talk. Uh, my name is Joe Wood. Um, I wanted to make a, an observation and then ask for your, your input. So um, I believe that we can see climate change as an, an externality and um, a- accidental um, outcome as a result of our current ec- economic activity. So people don't set out to deliberately change the climate. It, it happens as a result of our economic activity. And so my question to you is that within the current political and economic ideology, a free market liberal ideology which is dominant in many parts of the world at the moment, can we hope to tackle climate change or do we need to find a new economic paradigm in order to avert the worst aspects of climate change? Well, I don't know if you read it, but you should um, look at Naomi Klein's book which says essentially we've got to get rid of capitalism if we're going to um, uh, stop climate change or slow climate change. I don't think that way because I don't see an alternative to some version of using market, me- market mechanisms alongside public uh, uh, propagation of public good. I do think in the world economy we've ceded power to large corporations whose bottom line decisions settle much of our lives. The reason why we have populist parties is that a lot of the power has moved out of our hands. And that's happened because of the uh, privatisation of the global economy. I think politically we have to find some strategies to cope with that, including the fact they don't pay their taxes and so forth, including the existence of tax havens and gigantic inequalities. However, you know, we're not going to... You're not going to make total transformation of the system within 20 years... Nor should we, I think. There are some areas in which market mechanism is going to be useful for climate change um, um, policy. Um, they played a big part in bringing down the, well, alongside government subsidies anyway, bringing down the price of renewable energy. And we have to find ways in which corporations can be brought on board, as I was trying to say. You can't just leave them aside and say... They're doing evil things. We have to find some ways of either alerting them to the dangers or hopefully building those dangers into their uh, bottom line planning. But this is not a problem where there is a magical solution. So, you know, I came to the conclusion that everyone has their own solution, whether it's green growth or UN agreements, but actually we need to let a thousand flowers bloom because the other side of globalization is global creativity. Supposing you could unleash some kind of global movement uh, analogous to the uh, digital manufacture movement 
that came up with ways of radically expanding energy storage. It would transform the economics of uh, clean energy, if you could do that. That's part of the reason why, in answering the first question, you know, I still see that there is a dynamism in the world which wasn't there before. Global interconnections weren't there before. That's a bad side, but also has a kind of... The possibility of change is greater, I think, when... Uh, don't cross your fingers too hard. You might dislocate them. Oh. Let, let's, let's go upstairs. That's a very good comment. <laughs> go to the f- woman in the front row and then the gentleman in the purple shirt and then we'll go across. Look, could I make sure that... I, could I just uh, uh, say in relation to these comments, I'm not saying that any of these paths are out of the question. That is, there are huge risks here. All of this is a matter of risk. So you can't just say it's a single trajectory. At the outer edge... Of risk, we're talking, like James Hansen says, of the possible total depopulation of the Earth, the emergence of a planet like Venus. But what happens in the future depends in some part also on the policies that people follow and the trajectories that are followed in different societies across the world. That's why there is not a single path and we just don't know what's going to happen. But we have to... I'm happy to cross my fingers if I'm an irrational optimist. You know, that's what I would tend to do, I suppose. Got the microphone. Perfect. Thank you so much for the wonderful insight and your work in this area. Um, my name's Joe, uh, an average Joe, uh, just sort of um, impassioned optimist uh, in this sector. And I guess my question is, in what I perceive as a world of sort of a diffuse message on the dangers of climate change, where global leaders aren't always led by scientists and people in the know, such as yourself, um, I guess what is the role of the average Joe in the sort of economic and governmental sort of reform? And what, can, what can the general public do? Or what do you think the role of the general public is in advancing this sort of the movement in, in a positive way? Well, can I, can I hope everyone heard that question. I, I wouldn't treat the general public as an entity. I mean, I'm in favour of bottom-up um, initiatives on climate change and broader environmental issues. I think these are going to be enormously important, especially as they become global, because you think when you start a small business today, let's say with two people in it, you can be immediately global. That was never, ever possible before. So it's possible for bottom-up movements to have very substantial global impact, at least in principle it is. See, you know, I'm, I'm a strong supporter of initiatives by cities, um, initiatives by local towns, initiatives by local groups to reduce carbon emissions in their areas and to try to generalise them. You have about, I think it's about now, 380 big cities across the world are working to reduce their emissions. Some cities in developing countries have reduced their emissions very substantially, actually, over the last 10 to 15 years. So we will need all of these things. There is, there is like a diffuse public of the individual in the street. That person is proving extremely hard to reach. When I first wrote the book, a lot of us had the idea, well, you could like, teach people echo-driving that, you know, you see, petrol's bloody expensive. Here you are, you're contributing to greenhouse gas emissions. Why don't you drive in a more economical way? No one bloody does. Well, tiny, tiny proportion do. Even while the price of petrol has gone up, you see everyone going on the motorway at 80 miles an hour, gunning their cars with street. See, there isn't a huge distance from the ordinary person. And anyone who's got any magical ways of overcoming that, certainly like to hear it, 
And see, you know, you've got Giddens' paradox there because we don't want to wait until the game is lost. How can we wait till the game is lost? We must find ways of at least making lay people acquiesce or helping them acquiesce in necessary policies. But so far, it's proven very difficult in most countries across the world, with a partial exception of some small developing countries which are manifestly highly vulnerable. Gentlemen, the purple shirt, you've had your hand up along, and then we'll come over this side. You made four propositions, which are all good propositions. I'd like to offer a fifth proposition in addition. I believe that people in powerful positions should lead by example. That means, for example, that they, they should come cycling to work instead of driving cars. They should be vegetarian instead of eating meat. And there's lots of other examples that, that leaders in powerful positions should do. And when they do that, then, then, it, then the politics of putting good policy into practice for good ecology would be a whole lot easier. And you can't have the one without the other. Well, thank you for the observation, but if only it was so simple. I mean, you've had politicians who've tried to be exemplary leaders on the level of lifestyle, and they've often been scorned for their efforts. I completely agree that you basically need prominent people to show that they're sensitive to these issues and therefore this affects their lifestyle. So I haven't been on a long-haul flight for eight years, I think, now. I don't drive anywhere. I walk. I mean, I do these things. Nothing of that adds up to anything like the scale of the issue we need to confront when we're talking about a global problem like this. So... I'm afraid to say the hopes that I had in the first edition of my book that you could secure substantial lifestyle change that would diffuse through whole populations have not really stood up. So that's why I think you more depend on not so much on individuals or prominent leaders, but on concerted action in, for example, cities where leaders can certainly play a part, concerted action in local areas, concerted action in towns. I mean, the... Um, transition towns movement is very interesting, an attempt to sort of move beyond traditional ways of, of living everyday life. That's why I say kind of let a thousand flowers bloom in a heavily globalised world, and some of them might have quite radical consequences. Anybody up here? Yeah, uh, in the front row. And then I think another, yeah, behind, yeah. Hi, um, my name is Chelsea. I'm an MSc student in conflict studies here, and as such, I'm quite interested in well, conflict. Well, I hope you're enjoying the LSC. <laughs> yeah, well, you're it's not only from we the two. UK, I'm well, it's just a lovely place, the LSE. I it think. is. It is. <laughs> well, I do. Um, I was, I was in Cambridge <laughs> before, and Cambridge is a very nice, beautiful place, but the LSE is kind of lovable in a way I didn't find Cambridge was, I suppose. It is. It's, it's quite nice. This isn't being broadcast live, is it? <laughs> Hope it's not going on the internet, because I'm still Friendly a fellow at King's there. College in Cambridge. <laughs> 
Um, I'm particularly interested in conflicts where resource shortages or climate change play a, a large role. And I'm curious if there are any specific case studies that come to mind for you as kind of hotbeds uh, that we should spend special attention looking at either before they break out or because they've broken out due to resource shortage and climate change. Sorry, what should we pay special attention to? Uh, if there are any conflict zones that you think are especially um, uh, relevant for study uh, because of the influence of resource shortages or climate change on those conflicts. Can you give an example of what you've got in mind? Um, uh, there's a water shortage happening uh, in, in the Middle East, especially in, in Jordan. Um, I, I think that's particularly interesting because as more and more refugees yeah. come into Jordan because it accepts them from other conflict zones in the region, that um, I see. It, yeah. it's kind of securitizing immigration law there because water is, is not... Well, that's a, that's a very good case to take because... Um, you should look at the years of living dangerously because it starts with uh, Syria. And it argues that the Syrian conflict uh, results in some part from climate change um, because of lack of water. And it makes that argument quite interestingly and powerfully. So um, the trouble is whether it would convince someone indifferent or a skeptic is sort of hard to say. But to me, these things are happening. So that's why I say... We have to try and show that climate change is real and it's here, that it's not just something abstract in the future, that it's affecting our lives in the here and now before it's too late to do anything about it. Well, you know, you have some examples, like I used to live in California and, you know, the drought in California is fearsome, absence of water is fearsome. I think four years of extreme drought now. California's got decent record of environmental... Um, legislation compared to most other states, which has been partly driven by that. So, so there are certainly connections there. That's why I think, you know, bottom-up is going to be terribly important in, the, in these things if we can get anywhere with them, not just top-down. Somebody, three, yeah, and then we're going to come down. Uh, thank you very much for your talk, uh, Professor Lodgins. It's very good. Uh, my name is Scott. I'm a PhD student here at uh, the LSC. And Did my you call me Professor Loggins? Then, Professor Loggins. <laughs> Quite a good well. name, that, actually. <laughs> if you go into a career Sounds singing like climate change I know about computers, songs, yeah. Professor Loggins. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll call you Tony. <laughs> um, my question actually has to do with the, the fourth potential new paradigm that you mentioned, and that had to do with the new model of socioeconomic development. Um, and there are two words that I know in such a quick talk, it's very tough to bring up and discuss them, but it's consumption uh, and it's history. So it's very easy for a state like the United States or, or Canada, I'm Canadian, to say China, India, you're producing so much, stop producing. But the flip side of that is like, well, this is just leakage. You guys are consuming it all. So you started the talk with discussing uh, Copenhagen and what you call the fiasco. So next year in Paris, 2015, when the United States sits down at the table with China and India and that level of consumption comes up, how can you reconcile will history? Will the leaders go? <laughs> That's still an yeah, issue. I just, I'm curious that the level of, that again, I'm studying international relations, when they sit down across the table, how can the United States say to the residents of, let's say, China and India, we don't feel comfortable that you can have electric lighting or a washing machine for the majority of your population. We do because we lucked out historically, but now we know what the problem is. 
Um, so you guys just can't have it for now, or you wait another 30 years for this green energy to develop. Can I stop you there? Because there are yes. two aspects to that, and I'll forget them. <laughs> okay. uh, if I start from the second of them, what they can say is that you can leapfrog um, processes of change that uh, have afflicted our countries, and you can overcome them that way. So if you were to go direct on the large scale to renewable energy, you could avoid some of the issues we've had with established fossil fuel industries. You can't necessarily say it to China because China's already busy consuming so much coal, but as a principle, it's quite an important principle. On the, you know, a lot of this comes down to con consumption. That's the original observation, wasn't it? And we do live in these kind of mad consumerist economy. Which, you know, I think if you're thinking in terms of what I'm calling utopian realism, you know, at the outer edges, it's surely not the way to live. Why do we need an iPhone 6? That's, you know, we've already, I've got an iPhone 3 or something. It works perfectly well. You know, our, we haven't found a way beyond a, a kind of global market system which depends on endless consumption and destruction. Now, many people have tried to find a way, but I think we've got to continue that effort and we've got to try and say look there's a better life on the other side of this that a kind of simple consumerist legitimation for life is is going to be self-destructive so that we do need to find some deeper meanings for our lives and I think as a sort of medium term project that's going to be really important to me anyway I think consumerism is a, is a dead end beyond a certain point. And then you say that, and you go to China, and someone says, you go, oh, proudly, I've got a Mercedes, and, you know, my wife's also got a Mercedes, and what do you say to that, really? You know, so that's the sort of structural issue behind the observations, I think. Can this be the last Shame question, then? No, no, we've still got a while to go. Oh, okay. God, have we? <laughs> Shame, shamelessly going to pick somebody else that you oh, hired, I think. Hard uh, life here, mate. Robert Wade. Robert Wade. <laughs> oh, no, he's going to get me now. <laughs> no, this Inequality is, is going to get me. It, you're quite right. That's a good anticipation. Because I wanted to, This is Robert Wade. I'm in the department here at, of International Development, and you did indeed hire and me. And he is a great man, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Thank you. Um, One of the world authorities on my, inequality. Stop. <laughs> My, qu my question is... Also a great athlete. Uh, <laughs> knows a lot about the theatre. Stop. Stop. My question, before I was so rudely interrupted, is about the relationship between rising in income inequality and especially concentration of income and wealth at the top, a la Piketty, for example, on the one hand, and the politics of climate change. The point being that in many Western countries, but also in the BRICS, there is a very strong process of income concentration at the top, and this is having a very strong effect in the, on the content of public policies, which come to reflect the preferences of the super wealthy rather than of the average citizen. And the question is, how do the preferences of the super wealthy affect what we, is likely to be possible uh, to do to reduce climate change. What's the evidence on that? Well, first of all, as you know, extreme inequality is one of the most serious problems of our age now, I think. Not just on a national level, but on a global level. You've got um, such a high proportion of wealth locked up in tax havens, not being used for productive purposes, 
not being used for social purposes, which I think it should be. I think the world's leading nations have got to make an effort. I mean, they're sort of trying, G20, to get a lot of that money back and to make sure at the minimum it's paid in form of taxation. So I think, you know, whatever you think of Piketty's solution to this kind of issue, his idea of a tax and so on, I think there's a really serious issue for global society. Now becoming a very serious issue for China because um, a lot of Chinese super wealthy people have got their money offshore as well. So at least China has some motivation now to try and do something about it. I, I think, I'm sure you feel the same, that extreme inequality at the top is one of the most serious structural problems we now face. And if you look at the, the economic recovery in America, virtually none of it has gone to anybody else. So, I mean, that's not structurally defensible. I and, mean, you know, the whole system in the end be like climate change, kind of break down. Where it connects with climate change is not so easy to say because it connects mainly, I think, through the activities of corporations and the, the activities of the global marketplace. And these are essentially unfettered by national governments, by and large. And uh, we've, as I said, we've kind of ceded control of our world to giant corporations who I think are more powerful now than they were even a few years ago in the global economy. And we're really struggling trying to recapture public control over their activities, I think. So I don't, I don't see a kind of main connection I would see is that here you've got huge, two huge problems for us. But I think the main impact on climate change is really through concentration of economic power um, in the corporate world, especially in those companies that produce fossil fuels. I don't see, unless you can think of another connection, I, I don't quite see it. Yeah, it might be, but I mean, they're, they're, you know, hyper, as you say, hypermobile, very influential, have a lot of power within nations. You know, we have to kowtow to them. We have to say, please come and put your business here. I mean, I argue in my book on Europe that we've got to try and partially reverse processes of deindustrialization because deindustrialization is, again, some part where populism comes from. If you know These areas which were stable working-class areas, the jobs have disappeared. You have to kind of plead with a company to move there. Not at all clear to me why that is a justifiable situation morally. So I think we've got to reassert some kind of public control, if we can, over the global economy. It may not be possible, but I think we've got to try. And to me, I don't see how we're going to do it except through G8, G20. Unless you can, I mean, you work on the area, so you know so many hands got going better up. ideas We've got about than I. 15 minutes. The next one was a woman in... Was 15 say, a woman in minutes? Pink. You're kidding me. I should have gone speaking <laughs> longer. put a white jacket on. Uh, we'll go to you first, and then down here, and then we'll go to the back. So, Yeah. Last time I looked, you had a pink... A woman in white. Anyway, thanks for all this interest. Much appreciated, really. Hello, my name is Javiera. I'm a student uh, from UCL. 
And I just want to ask, I'm curious, you probably say it in one of your books, but I want to know what your stand is on, cli on nuclear energy. A lot of people say it's a solution, but in my view, it's, it's a bigger risk. And I would like to know your opinion about that. Um, I, I, I disagree with that, I suppose. Having looked at it again as, as extensively as a kind of quasi-amateur can do, I just think the overriding objective has to be to reduce carbon emissions. Um, nuclear power has played quite a significant role in that. I, I think that the numbers of people who die from coal-related diseases uh, in Europe alone is 30,000 people a year on a global level, much, much higher because all the people who die in coal mines in China and other less developed countries. Of course, there's all the outer edge is, you know, a fear of a serious incident. Um, but I think nuclear power can play a constructive role because it, it, um, it's responsible for about 13%, I think, of total global uh, energy. And that's mostly close to zero carbon energy. But I think over the longer term, we'll be dependent on... Um, innovation, and one reason I'd be reluctant simply to abandon nuclear power is that maybe we can make progress with nuclear fusion, maybe we can resolve the issue of nuclear waste, which is one of the most difficult issues. The thing is, when you get into this and you look at all the energy sources, they all have difficulties, they all have drawbacks. You know, intermittency is the sort of drawback of wind and, and solar power, unless you're in an extremely sunny place anyway, and Nobody really wants shale gas at the bottom of their garden and so forth and so forth. So there isn't a single en energy source which is uncontroversial. Anyway, I do, I suppose, disagree with you. I think we will for some time have to and should depend on nuclear power and we should uh, support research on innovation to get to the next generation of uh, nuclear power stations, especially, I think, those which would be like a if I can put it, a quantum leap forward. The European Union and the US are spending quite a lot of money on research into these areas, I think, quite rightly. Yep, you're next. You're next. Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> sorry. Hi. Um, I just have a follow-up. Oh, I'm here. <laughs> oh. Do you say your name? <laughs> <laughs> I must say, the LSE has changed. I used to come and give a speech, get one question, go away and have a drink. <laughs> Um, I just Not have a really. question following on your statement that uh, climate change has its basis in, in science and scientific evidence, and whether you see this close relationship between politics and climate science as inherently problematic in that you know, scientific evidence, as it moves through the political system, gets interpreted, perhaps misinterpreted, that these conclusions become watered down, um, or, or do you see it as necessary, this close relationship between politics and science, that politicians should work closely with, with scientists and perhaps be encouraged to act on that evidence? Are oh, I think, I think politicians should definitely work closely with climate scientists. Yes, definitely. But as I've said, there is a huge nexus of problems in there because politicians are responsive to their electorates. Most of the electorate are never going to get near understanding the complexities of climate science. I mean, you know, I'm a sociologist. I spent several years working on these issues. 
But I mean, I can't grasp the like the inner complexities of of the debates which specialists have in this area. So a huge array of political problems in that kind of gap, I think, and it's uh, forever going to be difficult to bridge that. But as I was saying, I think we have to look for strategies, and one might be the, the one that the UCL people have come up with, you know, trying to get more protection for climate scientists so they can speak out to the public more directly. There are plenty of strategies one could try to initiate, but it's a huge political issue that I think, that, you know, that's part of what I'm calling Gibbons' paradoxes. We've never had to deal with any issue in the history of our civilization which is mediated by science in that way. Never. So it's not surprising we're really struggling all everyday politics. And you can easily see why a person living in everyday life says, oh, well, you know, I'm sure it's, it's probably not man-made after all. I mean, you know, I read the Daily Mail, that's what it says there, so must be right. And, you know, six million people read the Daily Mail on the Daily Mail website. So, you know, you have a counter voices. And how can the layperson decide? It's virtually impossible, I think. So that's why I think it's a huge political gap. And it's very different from, let's say, political issues on the NHS. Everyone knows what the NHS is. They know what it's about. They know something about its limitations. They've used the NHS and so on. Climate change and science, not like that at all. So it's yeah, a good woman observation. At, yeah, anyway. one at the back, sort of two rows in front of our rather funkily dressed camera operator. <laughs> anyway, thanks so much for taking such lively interest. I do appreciate it a lot, actually, in spite of fooling around. Good evening, Professor Giddens. Um, my question is in regard to countries like India. So what can governments in developing countries um, such as India or China can do when they're facing a lot of internal pressures as well as external pressures, not only from um, company, uh, not only from other countries, Western countries, but also corporations more, more and more. I can say from my experience in, and knowledge of India that that is definitely happening. So how can a government in India work their way through this. Would you like to try and answer your own question? Or, or? It's, it's very complex because I, I think they face so many internal pressures. It's like the, I recently read a, a paper by Mulai Nassin and Zhou and they said it's, a, it's regarding scarcity, so it's more behavioral economics. And they say that when you don't have enough to eat, how can you plan for the future, basically? So these countries, I mean, we obviously... When efforts are taking place, they should be taking place all over. But when certain countries are almost um, not even on the same page of the debate because of their own conditions, internal and external, how can they be incorporated and what can be the role of the government in this? I mean, obviously, it's a very broad question. But I'm really sorry. No, but you're, you're entirely right to raise it because, as I said, India... <laughs> Well, even India and China alone will set the fate of the world, basically, even without the U.S., because the U.S. is at last managed to bring, to bring down its net um, greenhouse gas emissions, uh, although nowhere near enough. And, you know, it's a complex situation because people in India have the right to development, surely. They, they see the rich world. The rich world has chucked all this stuff in the atmosphere. Why shouldn't they have the same right to develop? Very hard to contest that. Therefore, India should have the same right to develop. 
And the only way we can attack it is to show that there are superior ways of development which are also beneficial for India. And that's where I think, you know, do need leadership. I mean, my, I've been to India one, well, three or four times, and there's a hell of a lot going on at a local level around ecological issues. I've been very impressed with um, some areas and localities and leadership in India. Uh, very radical um, compared to the West. And there is, you know, the real possibility that if you leapfrog some processes of change that we've got involved in, that it could be directly beneficial to India. And so if you can leapfrog, let's say, um, some aspects of the fossil fuel industries and move on a large scale to other forms of energy as the price, you know, the price is dropping really dramatically of wind, solar and other forms of renewables, really dramatically, far more than anyone anticipated a few years ago. Um, you know, we have to try and make a package, and I think we'll demand local and, to some extent, national leadership in India. But, you know, all the same issues that I raised exist there, I think. And so you come back to the first observation. You know, we're on the wrong trajectory. And absolutely no one I've read has found a way of simply saying, this is how you switch to the other one. That's why I think... To some extent, let a thousand flowers bloom and see what we can make of it in a global world and try and develop alternative models of development itself. I think we must do. Thank you, Thank you very much. I think we'll just have to do the last two questions. So you've had your, heart, your arm up for a long time. So first up there, and then the last one you'll be in. Yeah, sorry to disappoint other people. Hello. Um, Can I so ask you to speak up from there? Yeah. Um, if you were still the director of LSE, would you be calling on the university to divest away from fossil fuels um, and sort of go green over the next few years? Well, uh, when I was here, we looked at the whole kind of carbon consumption of the LSE and we initiated quite a range of policies to reduce it. We tried to increase environmental sensitivity, not just in the climate change area and in other areas. So far as I know, that's been developed further since I left the LSE. So I'm not saying that what I did was exemplary, but we certainly started to investigate those issues and set up some practical ways of trying to improve the LSE's environmental performance. I think it came very high up in the list of universities, if I remember, three or four years ago using a range of environmental um, criteria. One of the things we also did, which um, you, were, you wouldn't notice, is that we pedestrianized large chunks of the LSE site. Previously, cars used to drive all the way through the main roads on the LSE site. I spent a lot of time negotiating with Westminster Council to get these roads pedestrianized. So. I feel we made a beginning anyway, I suppose. I wouldn't claim a lot more than that. We also made a beginning with disability because I went round the LSE with someone in a wheelchair. It was horrendous, her life in the LSE. It was horrendous getting from one, you know, you know what the LSE is like, all these different buildings. Um, I, you know, I got a view of what it's like to be a disabled person. We also... Um, therefore, tried to put a lot of money into improving the structure of the site for um, disabled uh, people. Last one. 
Thank you very much. Um, my last question is on your fourth point on what we need to do to get a new social and economic development or a new view on that, which is a quite large point. And my question is, um, to that new model of development, um, is that compatible with growth and more especially with high growth rates as we have seen it? Or do we have to sort of face a trade-off and how is that then possible in the big sort of challenge in also getting the public on board? Well, I think that's not just me working on the issue. It's a whole cluster of people stretching across a range of social science disciplines. But it seems to me the situation that we've reached at the moment is unsatisfactory in quite a range of ways that I've been talking about. One is extreme inequality that was mentioned. Another is a kind of rampant market system which produced a, a global financial crisis. Another is the power of the big corporations to escape public control. All these things sort of zoom in on, the, on a range of environmental issues. So I think if we don't have some positive model of what we want it to look like, how are we going to change it? And, you know, I don't think a Naomi Klein model like revolution is, is going to work for that. You need something which has, as I say, a dash of utopianism. Look, the world can be different, but also high realism at the same time. Look, this is the way in which it can happen. So I tried to mention some of the ways, you know, you can leapfrog technologies. Um, we might be able to um, transform quite large chunks of the world economy if we get the major nations to change their ways. If we can actually um, get agreement among G20 nations to intervene substantially in the world economy, we could make a hell of a lot of difference. So I think there are plenty of areas where you can think of feasible things to do. Whether you can actually achieve them is another thing. And, you know, I, I think, I don't know how many people here share this, but I think this is the most unsettled period of world history that I think I can really remember, in, in which is a kind of fractured nature of the world, in which things are not following a, a stable trajectory in so many different areas from ISIS onwards. And somehow we've surely got to get a new sense of direction into the world economy and world society and in fairly short order and if we could build ecological imperatives into that it's certainly worth trying but as I would stress again and I come back to the first observation this is a world of if you like high opportunity but huge risks huge risks which no one has ever had to run before they've run many risks but Ours are different in many respects. No one had nuclear weapons before. No one experienced climate change before. 1850, the world's population was less than 1 billion people. We're going to have 10 billion people. On the other hand, we're out in space. You have these amazing medical innovations everywhere. Extraordinary, you know, innovations in information technology. That's why my new term for our world is what I call high opportunity, high risk society where you don't know in advance how it's going to turn out because a lot of these opportunities and a lot of the risks are new. They're not just historical ones. So we're like, you know, pioneers in 18th century America on a global level of massive transformation, which does have a lot of positives alongside the negatives. That's why I'm defining myself as perhaps a slightly irrational optimist because I am to some extent a believer in human ingenuity and human capability. 
to address some of our problems and issues. Well, thank you very much for your interest in all of this, and I hope you all have a wonderful time at the LSE. I used to say in graduation ceremonies, LSE, the one and only place to be. It rhymes quite well. That. <laughs>